0: in august of 1835 the new york newspaper the sun began publishing a series of articles that purported to reveal the truth about the moon and its many inhabitants the articles were so popular that one observer noted the office was besieged by thousands of applicants from dawn till midnight during the entire week, and although there was to be heard among the crowd some occasional intimations of skepticism, the almost universal impression and expression of the multitude was that of confident wonder and insatiable credence. Famous author Edgar Allan Poe commented on the frenzy surrounding the Moon article. Not one person in ten discredited it. A grave professor of mathematics in Virginia College told me seriously. That he had no doubt of the truth of the whole affair. You're listening to Race and Tyler Talk Wikipedia, episode 128 The Moon Hoax of 1835.
1: Okay, Tyler, our getting to know you question today is if you were giving a tour of your hometown to a visitor, what is one thing you wouldn't want to miss?
2: This is such a great question. Um, Because, no offense to any uh, Richmonders out there, but the suburb that I grew up in is kind of boring.
1: (laughs) 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 Uh,
2: And I mean that in the nicest way because I loved growing up there. It's so, so beautiful. But when I think about uh, what we went to, it was, you know, mostly like, Hanging out with friends in the neighborhood. We would go to like Mm -hmm. chain restaurants, you know, stuff like that. Virginia is just such a beautiful place that it's really pleasant to be there. You don't really need to, you know, go exploring very much. Um, But I have some good answers for this question. I would say, primarily, if you go to Richmond, Virginia, I would say find a way to go see the James River somehow. Mm -hmm. It's really spectacular. The river goes uh, pretty much through Richmond from up in the mountains down to the coast and Virginia Beach. And it's really wide and uh, very voluminous, lots of water. There's really nothing like it. I think it's just amazing. Uh, and there's a lot of different places you can see it. Um, you might be lucky enough to have a friend that has a river house on the river. Mm-hmm. Uh, or you can go to a place called Belle Isle, which is really beautiful. It's an island in the middle of the James River. Um, and I would say if you've already seen the James River, then something really spectacular as well is the Bird Theater, which is Ooh. near downtown Richmond in a little place called Carrytown, which is like a quaint kind of um, old timey shop kind of district, like lots of boutiques and things. And there's a really old theater there called the Bird Theater. I think it's from like the early 1900s. And uh, we would go there all the time because it was the dollar movie theater. Like you could go pay for really cheap to go see old movies that had been, I don't know what, if they even make those anymore. It's like a theater that shows movies that are kind of past when they came out. Yeah. Um, And it's really quaint and inside it's so beautiful. It has like a big, beautiful chandelier and like kind of old kind of workings on the walls and wallpaper, et cetera. And they even have an organist on Friday nights who plays the organ before the movie starts. And they have a very enchanting uh, bird theater commercial that they play before the movie begins, every movie. And it's like a commercial from the 80s about anti-littering in the theater. And they've played it (laughs) ever since. And most of the people in the theater will recite the commercial as it's playing. Oh, so it's funny! Like kind of a—it's kind of an experience just to go and see and watch everybody watching these movies at
1: this very beloved theater. Well, I'm looking at images of the inside, and this looks fake. Like I would <laughs> not believe, especially because I'm seeing images of the outside, and it looks like kind of. I can't even remember what the outside looks like. The no, outside is pretty nondescript. Like it's kind of a flat front building with some yeah, nice, like sconce work or whatever but then the inside looks like the yeah. Moulin Rouge or something.
2: Oh yeah. It's just like mystical. And given the yeah. amount of dollar theaters that I've been to after leaving Richmond and I like growing up, I thought this was normal. Like, Oh, you go to the dollar <laughs> theater. It's just like this. And I'm like, no, it's actually not. This is just like, like you said, it's like Moulin Rouge. It's like a yeah.
1: spectacle just to go. Yeah, totally. Um, So I'm, I'm just looking through pictures. I'm, google and they all look like 19th century paintings yeah. of, a th- of like a theater and then you get to one and there's a bunch of people sitting inside with cell phones and it's like oh okay this is a real place this is not <laughs> like this is unbelievable this is really cool
2: it's really awesome i hope you get a chance to go and uh, see whatever movie came out two months ago <laughs>
1: Well, that's awesome. Um, for my answer, this is a little funny because um, you, um, a couple summers ago, came to my hometown and were my guest. And I think that both of my answers are places I did not take you. <laughs> I was going <laughs> to like say, that. I wondered <laughs>
2: if your answer was going to be that pool that we went to. That pool. Because I pool. thought the pool was amazing. It had like a really high
1: dive. Oh yes, 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 yes. Um, so that's the next town over, the St. John's. Pool. Oh, that pool yeah, is that's cool. not even the same town. <laughs> oh well, yeah, but I mean, same, same, very similar experience. That pool always reminds me of the pool from um, the Sandlot.
2: Oh, I haven't seen that.
1: Oh,
0: Tyler, I should be embarrassed oh, about
1: that, right? Yeah, <laughs> well, see <laughs> the Sandlot. On the next tour of my hometown, I will take you to watch The Sandlot at my house. (laughs)
0: Okay, good.
1: There's a great, uh, The Sandlot's like set in like 1960s America, and it's about a bunch of little kids playing baseball, and they go to a like a quaint 60s pool, and that's a lot like the pool that we took you to. There's like a a low dive and a high dive, and it's very cool. Um, But, so you'll have to tell me if I pointed either of these two things out to you, Um, and I actually did recently have, um, I have a brother-in-law who'd never visited Eager, and he came, um, kind of stopped over on a trip to Denver. And we did point both of these things out to him while he was there. Uh-huh. Um, one is a real answer and one is sort of a cop-out answer that you hear. My cop-out answer is um, the stars. Eager is um, hundreds of miles from the nearest metropolitan area. Uh-huh. It's a four-hour drive to Phoenix and a three-and-a-half-hour drive to Albuquerque. So we have some of the lowest levels of light pollution in the entire country. Like this is one of the best places for low levels of light pollution. So on a clear night when there's no moon, um, I've never seen stars quite like that anywhere else in the world. Oh.
2: Um,
1: so really great. So that's kind of a cop-out answer because I, my town does not lay claim to you know, the entire galaxy, but it feels like you can see all of it from um, on a dark night in eager. It's very cool. Um, but the second thing that, um, I would do, and I may have taken you, I honestly can't remember is my high school, uh, in round Valley has an enclosed dome that we play all of our sports in like a, like a, like a, like what you're picturing, like a professional sporting dome, like, like the Houston Astro dome or whatever. Oh. Um, we have an enclosed dome that we play football and basketball and all of our sports in. for real, for real. <laughs> And apparently oh. i apparently, I did not take you there um no, I but, don't think I saw that yeah, so the um the round valley high school dome it's actually called the endosphere, okay <laughs> um but everybody just calls it the dome um, <laughs> and it was built in the eighties, and it was for a while we were one of the or no, we were the only high school with an enclosed dome like this. And one of the reasons that, or, yeah, so the Round Valley N-Sphere, it actually has its own Wikipedia page, Tyler, in case you were
2: curious. Mm, okay.
1: um, when I was in high school, it was pink, <laughs> <laughs> as the photo on the Wikipedia page shows. Um, it is now a lovely shade of kind of off-white. But um, it was built in 1987, and part of the reason that it was um, floated was um, like the reason this idea sort of made sense was, so we're at over 7,000 feet in Eager, okay, which actually is quite high. That's like that's like, like 2,000 feet higher than Denver, which yeah. is a mile high city. And if you are a sports team looking to um, do your off-season practice, it actually is a Um, a good decision to do it at very high altitudes because training at higher altitudes is, um, um, harder on the lungs. Like you have to get accustomed to the altitude. And once you do that, um, if you then go play at sea level or anywhere else, like football or baseball or whatever, um, you will be much, like there's a noticeable difference. Your lungs will feel, you basically feel stronger. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like exercising with like a weighted vest and then taking it off. Um, So as I've been, as it's been explained to me, the origin of this very nice, large, um, amazing um, like sports dome in uh, this tiny town up in the mountains was exactly for that. So that teams, college teams, and even professional teams, like we have, you know, the professional football teams and uh, a team that we have in Phoenix and whatnot could like come up and use it for off season training. (laughs) I don't think that that's ever happened. Um, As far as I know, (laughs) but um, everybody in town enjoys our wonderful dome because we have uh, very windy weather and in the fall it gets nice and cold. So all of our football games are indoors. Oh, that is. um, Yeah, that's where all of like my high school graduation was held in here. And that was in April of 2008. And it snowed like 10, decided to snow like 10 inches in April or May or whenever that was. And uh, we were totally protected because we were inside our lovely dome. So, did I drive you past the dome at all when we were in Eager? I'm really racking my brain. I think I would remember this for sure. Yeah, you probably would.
2: (laughs) Um, Is it hard to miss? Like, would we have gone by it?
1: Um, It's kind of back in uh, the neighborhood. We wouldn't, I don't, I I probably would have had to take you there. So, I'm guessing that I. Oh, I don't think so. So, So... I'm I'm kind of undermining my own question because. One thing I wouldn't want to miss, and I did miss when I took you.
2: Well, that is really amazing. So your high school really put to the test the phrase, if you build it, they will come. Is that kind of the idea?
1: (laughs) I guess. And um, (laughs) I also don't think it was that much more expensive than just building whatever other structure. And and it does bring in um, other things like they they hold big like there's a big car show that they do every year there that people come from all over to go to and it gets used for other things but um yeah if you build the dome people will fill it so if you're uh yeah if you're passing through eager you got to come see our big our big white dome
2: (laughs) all right i gotta go back
1: Okay, to begin our story, we have some important background um, to dive into, and luckily, it is about one of, maybe one of the most interesting people I've ever (laughs) had the pleasure to uh, dive into the Wikipedia page of. Um, In order to fully comprehend the moon hoax of 1835, we need to know about a man named John Herschel. Sir John Herschel was born in um, 1792 and died in 1871. And he was an English polymath. And if anybody has ever kind of lived up to that weird title of polymath, meaning one who, you know, is engaged in many, um, many disciplines and many pursuits, it is this guy. Um, It's going to sound like I'm making up some of his biography, but I'm, I'm truly not. Um, He comes from a well-known family. His mother and aunt were both famous astronomers in their own right, which is kind of cool in the late 1700s and early 1800s. Um, his father was also an astronomer and a composer. And Herschel excelled in many areas. Um, I'm not going to go into all of the details, but he published papers and was recognized as like a, a known man, an expert, uh, like a brain in Mathematics, botany, photography, optometry, astronomy, and others. So, for instance, um, in optometry, he correctly considered astigmatism in the eyes, which is actually something that I have, um, to be due to irregularity of the cornea. And he had this crazy idea. What if do you th- he said, we think, I think you could improve somebody's vision if you applied some animal jelly contained in a capsule of glass against the cornea. He basically invented contact lenses. Wow! (laughs) In the 1800s, he was a pioneer in glass plate photography. So very early forms of capturing images on, you know, in a a photograph. As a matter of fact, the word photograph was invented by John Herschel in 1839. (laughs) Wow! Um, He also came up with the terms like, you know, you have photo negatives. The negative and positive, that concept, those terms were invented by John Herschel. Some of his photos still exist. You can go see um, on his Wikipedia page. There's a photo that he took in the 1830s. Um, and, it you know, he managed to capture this, you know, a, capture light on a glass plate that he treated with these chemicals. And so he's kind of a pioneer in photography, which is bananas. Um, he's also considered the father of the blueprint. So like the way that buildings are designed and laid out. Um, that was John Herschel. Um, his, his big love was astronomy. He built, um, and used several telescopes and, um, you know, it's one thing now to be an astronomer where we have like telescopes back then, if you wanted to be one, you had to know how and have the ability to build your own telescope. So he was building these like 20, 30 foot telescopes with his own money and his own materials, like getting the lenses and the mirrors and all this stuff. Um, he took up astronomy in 1816, um, and he built this massive um, reflecting telescope. And um, his father had published a catalogue of the stars. He had like made this kind of exhaust, or not exhaustive, of course, but like this um, thorough list of observable stars. And between 1821 and 1823, with a partner, he um, re-examined the double stars that his father had catalogued. Um, he found was one of the founders of the Royal Astronomical Society in 1820, um, and for his work with his father, he was presented the Gold Medal of the Royal Astronomical Society in 1826. Um, he observed the 1834 um, appearance of Halley's Comet. He published a catalog of his astronomical observations in 1864, towards the end of his life, and it's called the General Catal- Catalog of Nebula and Clusters. Um, And he's credited with the discovery and, like, charting of at least four galaxies. So he was a pretty serious astronomer, um, all-around kind of interesting dude. Um, I have a miscellaneous section. These are some of my favorites. He was a friend of and inspired with his, like, zeal for rigor in science. He inspired Charles Darwin to, like, dedicate his life to science. He was friends with Charles Babbage, who went on to be the inventor of what's considered like the computer. Charles Babbage is a big guy, and they were like roommates at college or something. He was a pioneer in photochemistry, so like measuring the rays of the sun. He proposed changes to the Gregorian calendar because, of course, he did. And (laughs) he also had time during all of this to translate the Iliad of Homer into English. Oh, my so, again, this idea of, like, being a polymath um, is very well embodied in him. I feel like a lot of these old walrus mustache guys from, like, the 1840s and 50s were like, yes, I discovered this, you know, this, um, you know, th- there was a lot of dis quote, unquote, discovering going on by, co- um, like, colonialists who were like, no one has ever seen this land. And the natives are like, uh What are you talking about? (laughs) And this guy, though, seemed to be the real deal. He was a rich, you know, walrus mustache guy, but he put his money where his mouth was. And he was a very serious, rigorous scientist. He also kind of pioneered the concept of deductive, not the concept, but he was um, strictly proposed and like, um, you know, advocated for a code of rigorous um, deductive reasoning in science. So like you put forth your hypothesis, we eliminate the options that it cannot be. He had a very kind of measured um, meta approach to science that he spoke about and talked about, which, again, inspired scientists like um, Charles Darwin and, and these other people. So uh, he's a big, big deal. Um, he was very well known in his day. Um, I think the example that um, comes to mind would be like Einstein during, you know, like our parents and grandparents mm-hmm. lives. Everybody knew. I mean, even today. But when he was alive, everybody knew who he was um if you people would recognize him on the street if they saw him um and the same was true of him to in our day maybe the scientists that have filled that role would be like stephen hawking or maybe even like neil degrasse tyson today where it's like the man of science a person of science who you know is a a serious researcher but has like a popular you know is, is known to the world and and Probably gets asked for for their autograph, right? Um, That's this guy. Many things are named after him. There's a village in Saskatchewan. There's a mountain in Antarctica. There's a crater on the moon named after him. Um, So big, big deal. And the reason that his not only his knowledge, but also his fame is important is that in 1835, um, as you can guess from the title of this episode, um, something happened. A story was published. Um, and this is at a time when um, Herschel's career is in overdrive. 1835, he's just come back from this, or he may be still on his big trip. He went to South Africa, um, of course, because he can do everything while he was there. He's like, let me also sketch this un, you know, previously unpublished in Western world type of plant that I found in Africa. And he's on this big trip, um, height of his career in, in many ways. His name was on everybody's lips at this time in 1835 for a major scientific breakthrough, according to a newspaper in New York. um, Herschel had been able to view for the first time his eyes were the first eyes in humanity to get a clear image of the surface of the
0: moon.
2: So in 1835, New York City had three newspapers that were all considered serious news. They had the New York Times, which is still around today. They also had the New York Herald Tribune, which published its last paper in 1966. And they had the Sun, which published its last paper in 1950. And in August of 1835, The Sun published the first of six articles about the moon, which had this headline, Great Astronomical Discoveries Lately Made by Sir John Herschel, LLD, at the Cape of Good Hope from Supplement to the Edinburgh Journal of Science. The article said that John Herschel had used, quote, an immense telescope of entirely new principle to view the moon, and that he had seen its geography through the telescope. And I'll read directly here from the article. It says that he saw a beach of brilliant white sand girt with wild castellated rocks, apparently of green marble, varied at chasms occurring every two or 300 feet With grotesque blocks of chalk or gypsum and feathered and festooned at the summit with the cloistering foliage of unknown trees moved along the bright wall of our apartment until we were speechless with admiration the water whenever we obtained a view of it was nearly as blue as that of the deep ocean and broke in large white billows upon the strand the action of very high tides was quite manifest upon the face of the cliffs for more than 100 miles, end quote. So already in this article, what they have told us is that John Herschel has seen cliffs of chalk and gypsum, trees, and even oceans all on the surface of the moon. But the article does not stop there. It goes on and they say that he discovered animals. It says, quote, Dr. Herschel has classified not less than 38 species of forest trees and nearly twice this number of plants found in this tract alone. Of animals, he classified nine species of mammalia and five of ovipara. Among the former is a small kind of reindeer, the elk, the moose, the horned bear, and the biped beaver. The last <laughs> resembles the beaver of the earth in every other respect than in its destitution of a tail and its invariable habit of walking upon only two feet. It carries its young in its arms like a human being and moves with an easy gliding motion. Its huts are constructed better and higher than those of many tribes of human savages, and from the appearance of smoke in nearly all of them, there is no doubt of its being acquainted with the use of fire. Still its head and body differ only in the points stated from that of the beaver, and it was never seen except on the borders of lakes and rivers end quote. So we've got cliffs, trees, plant life, animals all over, and then we've got these beavers that walk around on two feet, they carry their young in their arms, and they construct huts that have fire in them. Uh, But there's more. (laughs) The article says, quote, the next animal perceived would be classed on earth as a monster. It was of a bluish lead color about the size of a goat, with a head and beard like him, and a single horn slightly inclined forward from the perpendicular. The female was destitute of the horn and beard, but had a much longer tail. It was gregarious and chiefly abounded on the acclivitous glades of the woods. In elegance of symmetry, it rivaled the antelope, and like him, it seemed an agile, sprightly creature, running with great speed and springing from the green turf with all the unaccountable antics of a young lamb or kitten. This beautiful creature afforded us the most exquisite amusement. The mimicry of its movements upon our white painted canvas was as faithful and luminous as that of animals within a few yards of the camera obscura when seen pictured upon its tympan. Frequently, when attempting to put our fingers upon its beard, it would suddenly bound away into oblivion as if conscious of our earthly impertinence, but then others would appear whom we could not prevent nibbling the herbage, say or do what we would to them. End quote. So we've got cliffs, oceans, trees, beers that uh, excuse me, beavers that build huts and have fire, and then we have this monstrous unicorn that seems to kind of dance around the fact that it's being telescoped. That does, that's not the end. <laughs> There's a lot more of this. The article says that the moon has bat like winged humanoids called vespertilio homo, which in Latin would translate to man bats. And it says that the man bats built very unusual structures on the moon. And I'll read again from the article here. It says, the first object in this valley that appeared upon our canvas was a magnificent work of art. It was a temple, a fane of devotion or of science, which, when consecrated to the Creator, is devotion of the loftiest order, for it exhibits His attributes purely free from the masquerade, attire, and blasphemous caricature of controversial creeds, and has the seal and signature of His own hand to sanction its aspirations. It was an equitriangular temple built of polished sapphire or of some resplendent blue stone, which like it displayed a myriad points of golden light twinkling and scintillating in the sunbeams. Our canvas, though 50 feet in diameter, was too limited to receive more than a sixth part of it at one view, and the first part that appeared was near the center of one of its sides, being three square columns, six feet in diameter at its base, and gently tapering to a height of 70 feet. The intercolumnations were each 12 feet. We instantly reduced our magnitude so as to embrace the whole structure in one view, and then indeed it was the most beautiful. The roof was composed of some yellow metal and dividing into three compartments, which were not triangular planes inclining to the center, but subdivided, curved, and separated so as to present a mass of violently agitated flames rising from a common source of conflagration and terminating in wildly waving points. This design was too manifest and too skillfully executed to be mistaken for a single moment. Through a few openings in these metallic flames, we perceived a large sphere of a darker kind of metal, nearly of a clouded copper color, which they enclosed and seemingly raged around as if hieroglyphically consuming it. This was the roof but upon each of the three corners, there was a small sphere of apparently the same metal as the large center one. And these rested upon a kind of cornice, quite new in any order of architecture with which we are acquainted, but nevertheless exceedingly graceful and impressive." It goes on to describe this temple for a lot more words, uh, but I want to quote with the last section of the article here, which is, is kind of interesting regarding the temple. We afterwards, however, discovered two others temples like this one, which were in every respect facsimiles of this one, but neither did we perceive any visitants besides flocks of wild do- doves which alighted upon its lustrous pinnacles. Had the devotees of these temples gone the way of all living, or were the latter merely historical monuments? What did the ingenious builders mean by the globe surrounded by their flames? Did they, by this record, any past calamity of their world, or predict any future one of ours? I by no means despair of ultimately solving not only these, but a hundred other questions which present themselves respecting the objects in this planet, for not the millionth part of her surface has yet been explored, and we have been more desirous of collecting the greatest possible number of new facts than of indulging in speculative theories, however seductive to the imagination." So there's all kinds of stuff on the moon, is what the sun (laughs) in 1835. Um, Not the least of which is these magnificent temples that seem to have been built by these bat-man creatures. Um, And the article is kind of poignant almost in asking what the purpose of these temples were and whether or not they signified some fate of Earth. The article also included illustrations of all of the scenery that it was depicting. And you can see them on the Wikipedia page. We'll also post them on the Instagram account when we publish this episode. But they're very beautiful, in my opinion. They're kind of hauntingly uh, beautiful and um, wouldn't you say kind of romantic? Do they remind you of like the big six poets? Kind of? Yeah, totally. Getting um, the
1: Coleridge vibes. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Like the, 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 Description of bat people is like, oh, that's scary. And then you look at it, and it's kind of like an Eden, like this.
2: Yeah, yeah. They almost like look this... like
1: angels, kind of. Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like they're winged and they're you know just kind of graceful and flying around this paradise. It just mm-hmm. seems With lovely. Beautiful
1: <laughs> temples and unicorns and beaver people.
2: <laughs> yeah. So the author of this article is listed as Doctor Andrew Andrew Grant who they said was the traveling companion. And here's a word for the day, by the way. The word amanuensis. Do
1: you know this word? I've seen it written, but I don't I don't even know if I'm saying it right.
2: Yeah. I'm not sure how it's pronounced. And it means someone employed to copy down what another person is dictating to them. Uh, Maybe like a scribe, I guess is kind Mm, of a similar word there. So Dr. Andrew Grant was the scribe to Uh, Dr. John Herschel. But the problem with Dr. Grant is he did not exist. That was not a real person that has ever lived on this planet. Uh, It was only a name in the article. Eventually, there were six of these articles, and by the sixth one, the secret author of the article, who was never to be revealed, at least at that point, uh, they wrote that the observations were finished because the telescope had been destroyed. The telescope was so powerful that the sun caused the lens to act like, quote, a burning glass. And not only did it destroy the telescope, but it set fire to the entire observatory, uh, shutting the entire thing down.
1: So no follow-up questions, please. This is kind of like (laughs) the dog ate my homework. Like, uh, I'd love to tell you more.
2: (laughs) But the observatory caught fire because the the telescope was simply too spectacular. (laughs) And it uh, hoisted its own petard.
1: (laughs) Well... As you can imagine, Tyler, this, <laughs> this moved newspapers um, and it caused quite a scurr. Um If you're like me, my two questions about this were, well, three questions. First, how have I not heard of this before? <laughs> now. Um, and then how was this received? Like, what did people think of this? And who wrote this? Um, well, like I said, this, caused quite a stir according to legend the sun received a huge boost in circulation because of this um this series of stories that was published and it like remained it kind of put it into the next level like it went up a gear in terms of its popularity and whatnot Um, it was kind of was established as a successful paper um i don't think i need to reveal to our audience that this was a hoax hopefully that is a apparent there are not <laughs> beavers who swaddle their young and build fires on the moon um but it was a hoax this was not discovered to be a hoax for several weeks after publication and even then the newspaper did not issue a retraction which i don't have any more information on wow. but is fascinating <laughs> um i think it's so interesting that the, so this went out under the name or under you know with the ethos behind it of john herschel um which kind of would lead people to believe it right like that's certainly got to be part of the Mm -hmm. any credibility that this had had to come from the fact that john herschel made these discoveries and um something that i hadn't really clocked before but tyler you were saying we have a whole new telescope that nobody's ever used before Mm -hmm. like it said um the art the part that you quoted said we have a telescope of entirely new design it's entirely yeah. new and so we have this technology nobody's ever had and the smartest man in, you know in the western world is publishing this and so um people would be forgiven for having you know acceptance yeah. on some level right um herschel himself was initially amused by this hoax and he was, you know, um, noted to say, none of my real observations are ever going to be this exciting. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, you know, I wish I was going to find something like that. But I'm I'm actually, you know, just looking at hydrogen, you know, the levels of hydrogen that are coming off the sun or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but later in his life, as this kind of went on, he became annoyed when he had to answer questions question from people who kept coming to him and being like, so what about the what about the bat people, the temple of the bat people? And apparently that became um, pretty <laughs> annoying for him to have to deal with. Like I am a real scientist and there are no bat temples on the moon. Um, as far as who wrote this. Well, um, there's a fun connection to Edgar Allan Poe. Edgar Allan Poe claimed that the story was um, a plagiarization of a story that he had wrote earlier called the unparalleled adventure of one Hans fail. And, um, And he published that via his editor, whose name was Richard Adams Locke. Um, Poe had published this story in 1835, June of 1835, which is just two months before um, the moon hoax of 1835. And he had published it in something called Southern Literary Messenger. And um, so that is obviously has less circulation than a major New York newspaper. And um, the, the, this Poe's story, it described the voyage to the moon in a balloon in which this man Hans lived for five years with people called Lunarians and sent a Lunarian back to Earth. It described the moon and what was seen there. Um, and however, uh, Poe's story had a satiric and comical tone. And so I think people could pretty quickly pick up this isn't real it also wasn't being run in like a newspaper saying this is a factual thing that happened Mm. and so um that might feel like a footnote however um i said that uh, poe's editor at the time was a man named richard adams Locke. well on the wikipedia page um it says authorship of this article of the of the um the moon hoax article in the new york sun was attributed to Richard Adams Locke. <laughs> <laughs> so Richard Adams Locke, um Poe's editor, it seems, two months after Poe had published this kind of funny satirical story about a guy who goes to the moon and sees a bunch of stuff, apparently turned around. Um, he was also a reporter. And in August of 1835, um he was working for the Sun and um he published this. And, and actually years later in 1840, Um, he, in a letter to another newspaper, admitted, I I wrote this story. So he kind of ripped off Edgar Allan Poe's um, little story, slapped the name of the most famous um, scientist in the world on it, and by all accounts tricked at least, you know, some people, a a large group of people um, were tricked. I think this is just one of the funnest um, kind of stories from history that I've ever heard. I think it's hilarious. And um, it leads to some interesting questions because I don't think that it was crazy at this time to believe this for a few reasons. First, as we've already said, there was some kind of hand-waving saying that we have a really strong telescope that we've never had before. That's the first thing. The second thing is it has Herschel's name attached to it. Uh, the third thing is that 1835... Things there were think of all of the things that were in the works or that were were coming at the time that would feel almost as crazy as this, like a, the concept of a photograph. It feels like black magic, right? Like, yeah, I'm going to take this box and if you'll sit in front of it and then I do this stuff with these chemicals and I pour this acid and whatever, I can come back and show you yourself on a piece of glass like that feels crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also at this time people, um, you know, white colonists are sailing into um, into the Congo and into the Amazon and coming out with stories that would kind of sound almost this level of crazy. Like there are people who are doing things that, you know, like the people who look different from anybody you've ever seen, they, their customs are different from anything you've ever seen. They have animals back there that are different from anything you've ever seen. Um, you know, this guy came, Herschel came from coal mining country in northern England. And in 1835, a coal miner in England um, is not familiar with the concept of like, uh, or has definitely never seen with his own eyes, a hippopotamus. But like he's been told those exist. They're out there. It's the size of, you know, a wagon. And <laughs> it's got like, so I don't know. I just think that the the time period also is like, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe they really have discovered you know, it's only a matter of time before we find out what's on the moon. There's all these telescopes. They're making all these advances. And why couldn't there be, you know, strangely humanoid beavers there? Um, So I think that's got to be at least part of the reason um, they believe it. But some of the just kind of questions to get our juices rolling that I've kind of pondered about this are like, why would people believe something like that? Are we susceptible to this kind of stuff today? Um, And how much do you think... Maybe people accepted this or at least gobbled up the newspapers as a form of entertainment um, over like education or factual information. Because I'm thinking specifically of like the um, oh, shoot, what's that newspaper quote unquote newspaper that's always at the um, grocery store checkout? The National Enquirer.
2: Mm, yeah. The
1: National Enquirer is still a print publication in 2023. Yeah, <laughs> like many better publications have gone under in this era of print journalism not being like super. People have been reading that for years, and I've got to imagine most people know that that's not real.
2: Yeah, probably, right? And like the reputation of a tabloid, I feel like exactly. all of those uh grocery store magazines you kind of look at them, and I mean, I always kind of scoff at like whatever the the covers are, you know. Oh, of
1: course, yeah. And, and yet they get consumed. And so mm-hmm. I, um, I think that's interesting. Like how many of these people were like, I don't know if, <laughs> <laughs> if they are really be able to see the exact architecture of this humanoid bat temple, but it was also probably good fun to read about. Um, but yeah, do you think we're susceptible to this today? Like, do you think taking all of those things, some sort of new technology, putting, you know, Stephen Hawking has passed away, but putting the smartest scientist name on it. Um, do you think there's things, like I, I kind of feel like we would be willing to accept things that in hindsight would be like, that's ridiculous. Um, you know, we might, we might have bought into this.
2: I think that's true. I, this is just so fascinating to think about because uh, it seems like surprisingly illuminating to our own like present times, you know? I mean, the first thing that I keep thinking about is how much more the average person knows now about the moon yeah. than back then. Like, you could talk right. to. The, I would realistically guess that you could tell this story to like a middle schooler, maybe even an elementary schooler, and they would say, "There's no animals on the moon. There's no atmosphere there."
1: Oh, for sure. <laughs>
2: like that—that's that's just something that a lot of people know now. You know, yeah. so like. Back then, they would just have had no idea because even though science had progressed a lot, it had still a lot farther to go. Right. Um, And I think you have a great point, too, about science always feeling like magic. I think all the time about each new invention that came out, especially in the 20th century, which seems like you have a lot. And right before it, you could imagine people being like, there's no such thing as like me having a movie in my house. And then all of a sudden somebody invents a television and it's just this magic box that, I don't know, satellites, like who knows, who can explain how it works or whatever, (laughs) but it's showing me and all you have to do is sit there and accept that it's real because you're looking at it.
1: Yeah, or like just the concept that I can pull my phone out and have a face-to-face, see in real time, yeah. my sister in Italy and just chat with her for a couple minutes just as I'm walking to get the mail like that is witchcraft
2: yeah and if you went 200 years ago and told John Herschel that he would have sworn up and down that it's not possible that's not possible yeah and then you just show it to him
1: you know <laughs> And I don't even think 200 years ago I think even 30 years ago if oh yeah dead, mm-hmm. like you know people would have said like oh, I don't know <laughs> like that that doesn't sound doable that doesn't you sound know? Right. <laughs> It's so curious.
2: I also think there's a very funny irony here, which is the sun is like trying to establish its credibility as a newspaper <laughs> and get more readers. And they're like, what if? Yeah. <laughs> we, pay, we make up a fake story. Yeah. <laughs> and that it seemed to work. You know, the newspaper took off and lasted until the mid-20th century. That's that's kind of shocking too. Yeah, I, I mean, like it the got question of, oh, sorry, go ahead.
1: I was just going to say it got copies in hands. And so maybe people yeah. were like, so, you know, it was, it was so, you know, salacious and spreading everywhere. And then people were just like, well, I guess I'll buy another one. Next week to see what happens. Yeah, after. yeah, exactly. And they hooked people, you know.
2: They hooked him that way. Yeah. But I like the question of what do we believe? And I wish I had, I wish we had more firsthand accounts of people who read this and, you know, was it largely believed or was it like oh only idiots believe that story it's very obviously fake or you know i I don't know i think that's really curious
1: yeah and i mean i you've also made a good point that like the moon at that time was so unknown yeah i think for us today i mean and i'm i don't have a super solid understanding but you're right that like that this would not fly today because the, that, the moon, the way it works, what it's made of. I mean, we literally have images of the surface of it like that has moved so far into the like circle of comprehension for hum- humankind that w- this story it seems silly. But like the, something that's as far out of our circle of comprehension as the moon was to some, you know, f- some steel worker in 1830 in New York City. I mean, I think you'd have to go to some distant planet. Like if if tomorrow NASA announced, we have found, you know, then the planets always have those goofy, you know, so planet Z42291 that's orbiting this, you know, star, however many light years away, like that is unverifiable by me. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. I can't, I am just going to accept that if NASA says, you know, 120 light years from, from our planet, there is a star, and around that star is this planet um, that is orbiting. And we've observed that it has. You know, you see news articles like this all the time. We've discovered a planet that looks like it might have a breathable atmosphere, or you know, is mm-hmm. is within the habitable zone. There could be something. Or I saw an article recently that was like the makeup of. We can tell from that many light years away what the atmosphere of any you know celestial body is made of mm-hmm. if we do the right tests. And we know that there's certain chem- um, some sort of compound in that atmosphere that this article that I saw said we've really always correlated that compound with organic life. So that's a big deal, you know. You and you'll see articles like that on CNN all the time. New planet discovered in the ha- um, um, habitable zone of a star, or you know, scientists are really. Um, you know really optimistic about this planet that looks like it might it could it could potentially have liquid water on it. And I just can't. I can't verify any of that I don't have a telescope in the yeah. same way that nobody in 1830 had a telescope that could see this. I can't, you know, do the atmospheric, you know, whatever um, tests to know. And so if you told me, there's a planet out there that's completely made of helium, and we have observed life on it, I would say, okay, Like, okay, NASA, sure. Yeah. A helium planet with life on it. And and I think you could get away (laughs) with a lot, um, you know, telling me that because that's so far from anything that I understand. Um, But now that we know what the moon is like, it does feel silly that these people didn't know. But, you know, you don't know anything about the planets orbiting distant stars. So so that must have been sort of how these people felt
2: and they even know so little based on just the story by edgar Allan poe right he says that there was a balloon that went to the moon and it's like no balloons can't go to the moon it's no. too cold right. <laughs> in space you have to get through space somehow
1: yeah and like I, so I, crazy. I guess i guess the concept of like an atmosphere maybe escaped the mass public at this time like probably so be, right yeah but like a balloon wouldn't you there, there's no air up there you know like just things that we now understand is so clearly that like uh-huh. you were saying my my you know my daughter would probably be like well you couldn't go up in a balloon there's no air up there you know? yeah yeah
2: but I like the question of what do we believe I think that's really interesting um this kind of brings to mind I think maybe the only time at least for me in recent memory where it seemed like the public was grappling with science on a larger scale. I mean, tell me if you agree here, but I, th- I feel like the coronavirus kind of forced people to question, do I believe what I'm reading in this newspaper totally. that is like purported by scientists, right? And you right. had a pretty clear divide. It was like, either you believe in the coronavirus and that it's a real threat, or you believe that it's fake and it's all made up and it's not threatening at all. Right. I don't know if I can think of any other time in my lifetime that we've seen that so closely.
1: Yeah. um, That's a good point. That has been kind of a fundamental question. Like if, if a bunch of doctors from the CDC and the world health organization tell you something is happening, like how, how clearly are you, you know, what are, what do you do with that information? Um, and, and it
2: took a while, right? Because oh, yeah. <laughs> in the, I mean, in the first few months, it was like, who really knows anybody who has the coronavirus? Right. Or maybe let's say the first few weeks. And then it was like, no, people have family members that are, you know, suffering from it. And people start to believe what what comes more tangibly, you know, I think. Yeah. And, um, you know, in the end, everybody made their choice. But I think it was on it was kind of unclear ground for a while, like whether people were believing the news that was being
1: reported to them. Right. And I remember hearing things that didn't end up being the case. Like, so I remember seeing something that was like, you know, some scientist or some group published a paper that was like, it's probably a good idea to disinfect every item you bring home from the grocery store.
2: Oh wow! Okay. I
1: remember reading that, and it yeah. was like, okay, do I need to like Lysol wipe everything that I, you know, all of my bananas that I yeah, stuff? and um, and yeah, like the, I if if I'm told that it's like, I mean, how can I other than just uh, some sort of willingness to believe, like somebody who says they know what they're talking about, like. I I think you're right that the the word is grappling, like society was like, what do I actually do with this information? Um, If only it had been something as spicy as this, right? This was just (laughs) people are getting sick. How seriously do we need to take it? Not there are beavers who can build fires, beavers building fires.
2: (laughs) That was awesome.
1: It is. It's that's also one of my favorite death cab for cutie records is beavers (laughs) building. (laughs) fires. Is that real? No, 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 no. okay. Oh, no. It just He's sounds a little there. like an indie rock uh, <laughs> an album. <so. laughs>
0: our only footnote today is to point out a fun, unintended connection between our story and our get-to-know-you question. Another important stop on Tyler's tour of Richmond, Virginia, it must be said, should be the home of a major figure from our story, Edgar Allan Poe. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to follow us, we are on Instagram at raceandtylertalkwikipedia, and we will talk at you next time.